Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis, to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Erin, we got the green light to go ahead and rock and roll. So y'all, today, like a lot of our days, has been a joyful comedy of errors, but 
there eventually got all of the soap out of his hair and the poop out of his butt and we made it. So hi, how's your day going? Right. I'm just tired. So bear with us. (laughs) Okay. Every time we're like, oh, let's do a live. And we've got like all these great ideas for the things that we want to cover. So we always bite off more than we can chew and we squeeze them all into one topic. And folks, that's what we did again today. So Michelle gets angry and writes the plans for our episodes while she's angry. It's professional frustration. It's professional frustration. Yes, I know. I hear it. I know. Yes, I know. Also, she talked me down from the ledge this morning while I was putting four miles on the trail. And y'all, if you don't have a wing chick like Erin, you need a wing chick like Erin. She was like, I haven't heard from you in three days. What's going on? And I'm like, Rawr! and then I word vomited. And then by the end, I was covered in sweat from finishing four miles and I felt better. So yeah. Yeah. That's it's okay. My best friend, I called her last night and was like listening to her tell me the story. And then I fell asleep. And I just hear her, Aaron, and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I fell asleep, but I was there. She also told me she thinks I should have a podcast just on like my life advice. I give great advice. I do not take it, but I give great advice. If I was a speech therapist, I was going to be a psychologist. You do give great advice. And I got to be honest, I think that the idea. So this past weekend, Aaron had another brilliant idea. She wants to start a YouTube channel about kids like oh yes 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 like describing food and how they eat food and the first guest will be there because this weekend over brunch on Sunday he was describing how to make a bolus and chew and y'all my seven-year-old just passed the praxis over brunch on Sunday yes he explained all the stages of swallowing via a seven-year-old brain, which is more like a, he's like a 60-year-old. Bless his little heart. So that's where we're at. Okay. So as Aaron may or may not have alluded to, tonight's themes came about because of a couple of professional frustrations that have surfaced. And I have to caveat tonight with, um, and I know the whole episode is not about the code of ethics but we will be referencing the code of ethics because I just, I have some worries. So tonight's episode can be framed from the perspective of, I was on social media and I was looking at industry leaders and kind of geeking out because I had the opportunity to be amongst great minds about a week ago. And some of them have incredibly well done highly respected social media pages that I actually go to, to have my nerdy heart and cup filled. Purdue's IEATS lab that's led by Dr. Georgia Melandrucki. We've had her, her PhD student, Dr. Rachel Arkenberg have both been guests on the podcast a couple of times, as well as Class Lab from Florida State University, chaired by Dr. Kelly Farquharson, whose specialty is speech sound disorders and dyslexia. And they have this, they're like literally bridging research to practice through their social media accounts. And that's freaking phenomenal, right? Because they're doing it tactfully and they're doing it professionally and gracefully. And then I scroll on and I see accounts that I worry about being code of ethics violations. 
So embedded within our code of ethics, one of the first things that leads out to me in the framework of social media is the misrepresentation of ourselves to the public and to our colleagues. And that's a biggie because a lot of people on the world of social media and even go so far as to put it on their profile pages on the ASHA, like the behind the scenes, the ASHA community, they have it listed that they're feeding specialist or that they're swallowing specialist. And the truth of the matter is that we cannot call ourselves a specialist unless we have pursued and obtained the board certified specialist certification in swallowing. Otherwise, that could be perceived as a code of ethics violation. I don't even like it when somebody introduces me and says, Michelle's like got advanced knowledge in this because I honest to God feel like I'm just barely freaking scratching the surface most days because within the world of pediatric feeding disorder, there is such a wide umbrella of what we have to know from a NICU skill set to a school-based clinician and every iota in between. So Aaron, what are your thoughts on all the things? And do you have the code of ethics number for the referencing yourself as a specialist by any chance? It's more so misrepresenting your credentials. So that's where it gets. And that's where like the code of ethics is very, it's, what's the word? It's not as specific. It's open to interpretation. Yes. Which makes it more difficult sometimes. Individuals, principle of ethics 3A, individuals shall not misrepresent their credentials, competence, education, training, experience, and scholarly contribution. So that's like very broad and can be open to whatever you feel misrepresentation is. But I think what becomes difficult on social media is that there's snippets of information, which is great because you're able to digest it pretty easily. I look at it as a sneak peek into things and then the need to dive more into them. If you're getting all of your information from social media in general, that's a big issue in and of itself because there's so much more than is capable of being put on social media. I know that you and I, like First Bite has a an Instagram. You and I both use our, our Instagrams to kind of talk about what we're doing. I use mine more, I think, as an outlet for some of my thoughts as far as like to connect with people, hoping that like we're kind of thinking the same thing or connect with with professionals who have a similar philosophy of treatment and to share joy. Like I had a kid this week who wrote in handwriting the word play, which I think was the coolest thing ever. But I think you really have to dive into who you're getting your information from. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there aren't young clinicians that don't have incredibly valuable knowledge. I'm a young clinician. I would be a complete hypocrite trying to lecture and telling people that you have to have all this experience to be able to provide information. I don't think that's the case, but I think that it's important to be honest and authentic about how much experience you have. Like I make sure that when I lecture, it's very obvious that I've been, you know, practicing for four years that I have experience in these areas. And I think in order to be a informed consumer, if it's not presented to you, then going, finding it and figuring out what you are comfortable with. But 
you and I have this conversation all the time, the world of PFD is a world that so many graduate clinicians want to get into, but yet there's such a need for more information, but there's also is so much information out there. So it's like, I, I know we need more, but I also know that there is a lot. It's just figuring out what is social practice. How do we access it? And yeah, social media provides a very great way to do that because it does have these small bite-sized bits of information. We think our podcast has bite-sized amounts of information though. So, but like, honestly though, like we're not looking at every episode as like, this is a small chunk of information that you're getting within an hour. And also I think I struggle because I too see things that make me feel frustrated Granted, you and I are much more, are pretty connected in the world that we're in, but I also have to learn to trust the people in our field that they're going to be able to see what is quality and ethical and within that realm, even though that sometimes takes time. Yeah, I think... It's just important to know that like, this is hard. What we're doing is hard. And if someone makes it look easy and, or if someone makes it seem impossible, then kind of maybe look in another direction because yes, it's hard. We need to put in a lot of extra effort. We need to make sure that we're doing continuing education that we're seeking mentorship and all of those things. It's not just going to be magically found out via social media, but at the same time, like you can do it. So it's so making sure it feels yeah so one of the things that i have come across is i think it's preamble 1 principle of ethics 1 j individuals shall accurately represent the intended purpose of a service product or a research endeavor and shall abide by established guidelines for clinical practice and the responsible conduct of research so what i see is in the, and this carries over to to letter L, individuals may make a reasonable statement of prognosis, but they shall not guarantee directly or by implication the results of any treatment or procedure. And what I see on social media is presentation of information, like a very specific research article that goes towards maybe it was like a singular case study, but it may not have been an RCT. And blanket statements are made about research and presented in such a way through the tick of the talks that the truly intended purpose of the research could be skewed or an individual who is starving for help for their child may come across a video that's made and latch onto it. And that's what scares me because, okay, in my personal life, my youngest sister is currently on bed rest with twins and they're too early right now in truth. And she is inpatient, hooked up, level three NICU. And if I start thinking about it, I will burst into tears. So, but I say that because I know Her nursing brain is spending hours on social media trying to find solutions to help stop preterm labor, to help stop all of this. We all have that vulnerable spot in our hearts where we are starving for information and guidance. And 
in our quest to find a solution, if something is presented in a way for attention grabbing purposes, it could result in false hope or in an individual getting their heart hurt. And it could open up that first, the creator of the content, even though it may not have been created with malice, it could open them up for liability. And so I say that because we have to remember that the consumers on the other side of social media, we don't know where their head and heart space are. And we also don't know how they will feel about their, I mean, what if they are the producer of that material? We don't know how they're going to feel about their content being discussed or presented in such a way. And we also have to make sure that when we are talking about another individual's content, that is their intellectual property, right? So, and I say that from the perspective of, yes, Aaron and I both have social media. Honestly, my family count is just us and food and kids and pets and flowers, all of the flowers. Um, if Oh my God, I have got to post the school pictures. Bear straight up looks like he had a mugshot taken. <laughs> I absolutely refuse to get them retaken because this is the photo that I'm putting in his high school yearbook and he doesn't know it yet, but like, give mm-hmm. me that mm-hmm. many more years. But Mm-hmm. Y'all, I say this. Well, it could be a parent. There's a lot of parents that go, like you said, yes. that go on social media and that look for information. I can't tell you how many parents are like, well, I saw this Instagram or I saw this TikTok and they talked about doing this. And you're like, okay, that's great. But you do understand that like anybody can, and that's the other issue I have with social media is too, yes. is that there's not really anyone monitoring. There's not really any like oversight with it. So you can say whatever you want. You don't have to credit anybody. You don't know who's going to see it. And so, whereas like a lecture that you're going to hopefully has cited their resources, has, you know, if it's approved for ASHA CEUs, at least has it through a company that has, you know, done some of that work to then be held responsible for something. Yes. The person that's posting it, is responsible for what they're posting, but also to what degree we don't even know. I mean, I don't know what the laws are in regards to that, but, and does everyone that do that go look and look up every resource that someone's citing? Are they citing a resource? Do you trust them? Like, do you trust that they're going to have the right information that they're giving you the right information? So I would rather most of the people that I follow on social media and kind of go to that for information and resources or sources I already trust. Yes. And um, it's just so, like social media allows me to connect with them. So on that note, when you are looking for resources on social media, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, Feeding Matters, Dysphagia Outreach Project, Aaron helped me out at Purdue I Eat Lab, Class Lab from Florida State. Get permission has the uh, Instagram. Yep. NoTube has a really good Instagram account, Dysphagia Research Society. They have, and it's not necessarily just their Instagram accounts, but it could also be their Facebook pages. And a lot of the clinicians that are behind the scenes within those entities also volunteer their time to serve on SIG 13. 
So if you're specifically looking for feeding and swallowing materials, content, and resources, you can post a question in SIG 13 and the greats in the field will answer for free. So also, before we go any further, you cannot diagnose a tongue tie predicated on a picture on social media. You have to see it in use, in function, period, end of story. It's not debatable. It's it, there's there's no debate. Yeah, we didn't even talk that much about Facebook, but Facebook can get really scary. And Facebook can get really scary for parents. I have a lot of parents that were like, I joined this Facebook group, please. I thought it would be really helpful. And then like, I just kept hearing parents either say like, oh, well, my kid did this. Don't, you know, this isn't half as bad or, you know, oh my goodness, how are you dealing? Like it can be helpful, but Facebook groups can get a little scary. So I would caution against posting questions in a Facebook group, unless it's like a very specific Facebook group. I know there are some like courses that only people that have taken their course can be in the Facebook group or like things like that. So that's one thing, but there's a lot of Facebook groups out there and people can say whatever they want. So that's the other thing is like, just because someone says something doesn't make it true. So Yes, you're asking for help, but like, where did they get that information from? Like, you deserve to know that because also if you're going to take the advice of someone and then bring it to your patient or bring it to your family, you better have where you got that information from. And are you going to save this person on Instagram? Because I I would not be happy as a parent if you told me that you got this recommendation from someone on Instagram. I would want something More else from there. Okay, there is yeah. one last... Instagram account that everybody has to go follow to put joy on your heart. It's called round dot boys and it's spherical shaped animals. And it is the greatest thing ever when you're stressed just to look and it's spherical shaped animals doing things that they can't do because they're so pudgy. (laughs) So there's your Thursday night tip of excellence, but that is, I mean, sometimes you got to take a break. Okay. So then on that note, we're going to segue to the topic of the tots. And I have to preface the rest of this conversation with this past year, I had the joy of volunteering my time to serve on the, it was the second year we've had it, the pediatric feeding and swallowing track for ASHA under the tutelage of Dr. Memory Gozo, who's the chair of University of Alabama. And our small breakout group session was Dr. Raquel Garcia out of Florida, almost Dr. Kristen West out of Pennsylvania. And we specifically honed in on the fact that um, TOTS and non-speech roll motor exercises need to be addressed in depth, right? And there is an invited talk at ASHA this year, specifically presenting this research in depth. Jennifer Casto, who's a professor at a University of Arizona, will be talking about TOTS and non-speech oral motor exercises. And she has a partner in crime in this, probably the wrong word to use, but like partner in joy and expanding current evidence-based practice. So please, please, please go and listen to them as well. Okay. Now that that has been like joyfully placed and plugged. We will see you in New Orleans. Aaron and I will be there. Huzzah. So I'm just going to relay the title of this article that was shared to us by Dr. Krista West. It's from the British Medical Journal. 
practice, and it's called the posterior tongue tie and lip tie, a lucrative private industry where the evidence is uncertain. And it was published November 26, 2020. And in this article, they cite the research that it's estimated that 4 to 11% of newborns in the UK are actually born with a quote-unquote tethered oral tissue, tongue tie, also known as ankyloglossia. And then they go into the topics by a series of ear, nose, and throat physicians who discuss their opinions on the profits that can be made on tethered oral tissues. But just the title alone is what is alarming because that is a concern that clinically I have had and held for a while when there are practitioners in my immediate area, as well as Aaron's immediate area, who, if you are concerned that your newborn and Aaron and I both have our CLC, but if you're concerned that your newborn has a tongue tie, the practitioners will accept cash only payments for severing of the tethered oral tissue in lieu of billing insurance. And I, on the surface, have to raise an informed consumer hand of, wait a minute, what's going on? Because if I have health insurance that will offset the cost of my sons getting their tallywhacker circumcised, but Somebody told me I had to pay $500 to $1,000 cash for severing of a little frenulum under their tongue and then an additional cash payment for a functional frenulectomy for a clinician to stretch it. I have a couple of thoughts of where is that just raises consumer red flags. Also, I'm going to go to this lovely article from the head and neck surgery, otolaryngology surgery 2020 from May that is entitled clinical consensus statement in Cleglossia in children. And it's from the American Academy of Otolaryngology head and neck surgery. And it was literally two years ago, they were trying to figure out a consensus statement for what actually meets muster for a tongue tie, a lip tie, and a, a buccal tie. Because it's scary to me. You mean we don't, we don't have a consensus. We're cutting on things that the actual surgeons that are doing the surgery don't have don't. a true definition. And yet, Aaron, you said it best. We don't own the mouth. Mm-hmm. Y'all, if you can't tell by now, I am really struggling to find the correct terminology to seek to understand while I have a significant amount of biasy that tethered oral tissues are a non-issue. And on that note, let me refer this over to hazelbakerinstitute.com. The one and only Dr. I always say Hazel Baker comes out really, really Southern. And I know that it comes out very, very Southern, but Dr. Allison Hazelbaker, Baker is the original founder. She created the assessment for tethered oral tissue issues. And this year I had to renew my CLC. And in the course of renewing, I took every single class I could get my hands on from her. I mean, I spent all my monies with her. So I highly recommend her courses. She literally wrote 
the test that is used worldwide worldwide. And she shares in her, one of her, she's got a couple untethered oral tissue issues, but she shared in one of them that only three to 4% actually need to be surgically resected. And the rest, we have to get at the underlying issues. And the most common underlying issue is actually torticollis influencing plesiocephaly or brachiocephaly, which it's it then turns around and exacerbates the, um, the torticollis and the overall postural alignment. And so, mm-hmm. but we're not taught that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably going to take it. I don't have the money for it, but I really think I'm going to take it. The OTPT company that we collaborate with a lot is bringing in, and I'm going to find her name because Karen sent it to me, but she's an OT who also does NDT neurodevelopmental training, neurodevelopmental treatment. And this course is focused on posture and in specifically, this one is autism spectrum disorders, but Kim Bartell, she's amazing and brilliant and wonderful. And she hasn't been on the East coast in years and years to teach. So she's coming in person, which is why I think I need to take it. But a lot of what NDT talks about is that posture and how and why we have kids that can't sit at the table and how we can help provide support and cues and understanding of how our bodies move and develop essentially. But I've also been learning so much more from my OT counterparts about about all of those muscles and that movement. And we have so many kids that because of their underlying neurologic conditions or genetic syndromes or low tone or whatever it is, don't have these as much of this movement and experience with their body, which can impact so many things. Like I have one kid I work with who, because of his low tone, his head is always kind of down, looking down, and he doesn't have as much experience with kind of lifting that neck up, building that posture, which impacts his vision, what food he can see, which impacts his core muscles, which then impacts his neck muscles, which we all know what's in our neck. And so thinking about like all of these other things, but yeah, we sit there and we're like, oh, it's probably a tongue tie. And you're like, okay. But like I said, it's, this is not isolated. We have so many muscles in our mouth that we can then, I, I will say it. I know that the argument is that there shouldn't be these use of these compensatory strategies and that really it's a tongue tie and we should be clipping the tongue because like, why are we making kids use compensatory strategies? If we could use compensatory strategies in our life, we would all not be here because we would have done something to not end up like that's how we function in the world. Our bodies are all different. Our muscle groups are all different. There are some people that whose knees are a little bit weaker. What do you have to do first? You strengthen the muscles around the knee. So maybe if their tongue for whatever reason, isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing, we have to give it support and use other muscles to be able to coordinate. And then that usually comes with it as opposed to let's just free your tongue up in your mouth and then we'll figure it out from there. Okay. So that was, hold on. I literally have 14 different research articles pulled up. This article right here 
It's way, I was way down deep in that article. It was the clinical consensus statement in Glossia and children. Mm -hmm. At the end of that article, I scroll back down. They go through and talk about as a result of definition disagreement and the lack of validated grading tools, the group was unable to recommend a preferred Glossia grading system. Okay. And there are other systems such as the Hazelbacker assessment tool for lingual frenulum function or Bristol tongue assessment attempt to include functionality in the scoring. And it's that functionality piece, right? That gets tied up. There's this other article that came out SIG 13, June 19th, 2019, assessing the breastfeeding dyad a guide for speech language pathologists. And if you're an ASH, well, you have to be an ASH member and you have to be a SIG 13 member. But in the abstract, it talks about the need for SLPs to go through and be able to fully assess breastfeeding. But here's what was beautiful. The authors are Jamie Maurin Smith, apologies if I butchered that, and Catherine Watson Jenna, G-E-N-N-A. This is the piece that I love. When they go through and they're talking about collecting a history in the first table, table one, interdisciplinary problem solving for the breastfeeding dyad. A tight frenum restricts the tongue movement. The first place they recommend is to an ENT, but that's just it. When you go through and you get your CLC coursework and you go to renew it, and they actually talk about tethered oral tissues, and they don't spend an expended period of time on tethered oral tissues because they're busy talking about like how to support the lactating mother and the child. We have to remember that this is an interdisciplinary component and that there's something driving it and not just necessarily a weakened, shortened, tighter tongue. If a child's tongue is held anteriorly, even as an infant. Something else could be driving that, such as enlarged tonsillar tissues, enlarged adenoids, micronanthia, the torticollis. But the other piece is when we're evaluating our infants and we're evaluating our mothers, are we sitting back and asking the meaningful questions of, how supported are you in your attempt to breastfeed? Like really truthfully, like this is where we tie in. This is where we tie in family guided routines based interviews immediately on our lactating and our breastfeeding mothers and our, this is its purpose because mm-hmm. to the mothers in the room that has have breastfed and to bottle fed, because remember fed is fed is fed. The purpose is that the child is nourished. It's exhausting. You spend all day feeding another tiny human off of your body and you're basically a ravenous wildebeest the entire time because you just want to put the food back in your body and the nourishment back in your body. But it takes time and you have to develop a bond with your child. At those critical moments, you're having to learn to recognize that infant's hunger cues. And this is not a, you feed that infant on a schedule because that's not how we eat. We eat when we're hungry, right? When we learn to respect our hunger cues, when we learn to, it's cue-based feeding, it's responsive feeding. But oftentimes our culture says a mom in America has to go back to work after six weeks. 
you got to get that boob in, you got to figure it out and you don't get time to build that relationship with your child to recognize those emerging cues. Mm -hmm. And that breaks my heart. I mean, that goes into the whole paid maternity leave and, but being a full-time mother and a stay-at-home mother is a full-time job and it should be respected and valued in our culture. And those are like social conversations for Mm-hmm. After hours. Well, there's a reason why a baby isn't expected to gain back their birth weight until two weeks after birth. Yes. Because they're giving them time to figure it out. But I hear this conversation of tongue tie come up like day two, day three, day one. Within the first six and hours. There was another Rapados, Christopher Lee, Rebecca Hill did a systematic review of the prevalence of ankyloglossia in children aged less than one year. And they found that the prevalence was eight percent. And 7% in males and 4% in females. So they changed. They said when you did like a a standardized assessment, the prevalence looked a little bit higher. But if we're thinking about how often we're having this conversation and the fact that that the prevalence they found was less than 10%, Mm -hmm. that's a little, a little alarming, but I understand that I had a conversation with a mom yesterday, which was like a very, I had to like download after that because I was like, my brain is going 500 miles an hour. But when you feeding is supposed to be, like you said, just a natural process. We have these reflexes, we integrate them. We love food. We have this good attachment. We build this relationship. It's great. But feeding is really, really hard. I would use another word in there, but, or I can't do that. (laughs) It's really hard. And when there's breakdowns, breakdowns, or as my OT partner in crime, Karen, and I like to call them disruptions in this natural development. It's not that easy just to, to rebuild that in the same natural way, because now you're having to look at all of the aspects of feeding because it doesn't come as naturally. The fact that our bodies can do what they do and eat when development, when that is such a finest of the fine motor skills, when we haven't even necessarily begun to walk yet is because of all this, this natural reflex integration. Yes. But when those aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, and it doesn't feel as natural, we have to build all of these other skills to do so. And it's not easy to just it's easier to blame it on solely an oral motor tongue tie issue, but chances are it's a much more multi-systemic. And Billy Rubin levels, C-section medications, pain medications, low sugars, all of those can chemically alter. Yeah. How a child is even like processing their environment, how a child is being able to stay regulated in their environment. What's stopping them from being regulated? Why is, I'm going to find the lecture, but like everything that we develop starts from a suck. Like it starts from a suck. So like, if we're already having these issues, don't even get me started on the fact that like, we can feel things in our sensory system starting from like week eight. We're already having all these exposures and responses to the environment through our mother. But not to get too much off topic, but it's just, our point is that 
this is hard. This should be hard. If it was that easy for it to just blame everything on the tongue tie, like we would be out of jobs. So just thinking that, and also acknowledging, and this is coming from a very trauma informed lens, putting your hands near or in a child's mouth is a huge power move. And it is something that should not be taken lightly. So honestly, part of me is like to have to go in and stretch a kid's tongue and shove my fingers in their mouth when they already have feeding difficulties. That's going to take forever to rebuild that positive experience. Like that is so traumatic. And then to put up, if we're looking at a pediatric feeding disorder from the like psychological standpoint, then you're putting parent and child again through more trauma because the parent is having to do this to their child and they don't necessarily want to do that. I got this two things. One, the episode that went out today is on non-nutritive suck with Dr. Emily Zimmerman, who's the current acting chair of North Eastern Eastern. Thank you. I was like, wait, yep. yep. You saw the, I did, I did the map. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she talks about this and talks about the positive influence of mother's pheromones on learning to suck. But there's another article which perfectly segues over to non-NSOMES, non-speech oral motor exercise. And it's called The Effect of Oral Motor Intervention on Oral Feeding in Preterm Infants, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And it was in the American Journal of Speech Language. Pathology, volume 30, September, 2021. Okay, so they're going through in this research article, aiming to explore the effect of oral motor intervention on oral feeding in preterm infants. And let me caveat, this is not non-speech oral motor exercises. This is literally what Aaron was just talking about to improve the efficacy of oral feeding in preterm infants oral motor intervention. That was page 2318. And they're talking specifically about non-nutritive suck, oral simulation, stimulation, and oral support. But oral stimulation from the perspective of very rhythmic, and rhythmic being the key word, because it's Dr. Joan Arvidson's approach with like putting the rhythmicity back in to that emerging system. And via a pacifier of mother's express breast milk, but this is not non-speech oral motor exercises. And this is not aggressive stretching. This is, they are picking up. Yes. This is, this is stuck in the womb. Like there's, this is what they're already doing. Yes. And the rhythmic, that's a hard word to say. Rhythmicity, rhythmicity. I don't think people realize how much, and I've again learned this from working with OTs, how much that rhythm is a part of everything that we do. Like you think about your heartbeat provides rhythm to your body and the way that we talk provides rhythm and the way that, and so that suck and that like building that consistency can also be so regulating and calming on top of like hearing a mother's voice and we rock in rhythm. Like we do all of these things that have this rhythm to them. We just don't realize that we do it. And then when the rhythm is off, there's like a reason for it, whatever that may be. 
Like when you think about a baby that has a history of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, like their rhythm with their suck is usually always off because they're, they're taking their breath breaks, but that's for a reason. And so like, that's the beauty of that, like building that, but also you're to go back to what Michelle was saying, like you're building rhythm with a pacifier to help them feel more comfortable than when you like bring in a bolus and bring in something more complex, but there's so much more to it. Yes. Yeah. Or a bottle. Yes. Okay. So here's the deal. When we're addressing tethered oral tissue issues, you need to be, and again, to tie it back to our code of ethics, we need to make sure that we are practicing within our current scope of knowledge. So again, I do recommend get your CLC, take Allison Hazelbacher's course. I want to learn from the greats. I don't want the value of the message to get muddled. I don't want muddy waters. I want, while they're there, I want to learn from her, right? Which is why whenever Joan Arvidsson speaks, I'm like, watch out. I'm running to the lecture hall, but like may or may not be like, get out of the way. (laughs) There I am running. Okay. But take that information and apply it clinically build on the information that we have from greats like Dr. Emily Zimmerman from the meta-analysis that are being done and employ your team, your interprofessional practice team to actually say, hey, what else is going on? Is it a respiratory issue? Do we need a pulmonologist? Do we need an otolaryngologist? Or does the family just need time? Maybe the mom needs somebody to help take care of her. And Also, if the TOTS concern boils down to a TOTS issue should never boil down to they have to do this in order to breastfeed, because at the end of the day, the point is, is that that child is nourished and no caregiver should feel that they have to violate their child and no caregiver should feel pressured into a decision by an outside person that is between the caregiver and the child. Well, and tongue tie has put a lot of fear in parents. Like I have friends that are becoming parents now and they just like are so fearful that they're, they're going to miss it or their kid's going to have a tongue tie. And it's just like this very like fear based mentality, which makes me really upset because I also like, I just don't think that's right. But also a lot of, I, I think we have to remember and we have to put into perspective how much experience typically developing child has with food. And a lot of times that difficulty transitioning, is not always difficulty transitioning. It's just, you haven't given them enough time because they're not having as much experience as their neurotypical peers. So also think about that. Like, don't be, you know, I think people jump to that. I think that like, we have a lot of kids that just aren't getting the same experience because of whatever reason they didn't start PO as soon, or they just because they're on tube feeds, they can't have PO as every meal, like another child might. And so put that into perspective as well, because they do are owed that amount of experience and owed that amount of time. That's why we have these developmental norms and understanding that they're a spectrum, but at the same time, like sometimes it is giving them time and experience. I was just thinking of the whole ethics thing in social media, and I did see a post where adults, women were claiming that they had their tethered oral tissue issues addressed and it improved their, I don't think I can say that on a podcast. Probably not, but But you um, can use your imagination. Yeah. Let's just say it 
was the highlight of their day on a Saturday morning. And if you're married, you know what I mean. And if you're not married, well, you probably don't have Saturday morning cartoons earmarked for that time in your household. <laughs> like that to me is alarming because that should not be a selling point of a craniofacial concern. But like I digress. We have 10 minutes and then we're going to cover, and in that 10 minutes, non-speech oral motor exercises. So like, let's go there. God bless Saturday morning cartoons. Okay. So non-speech oral motor exercises. There's a great article from the otolaryngology, rhinology, and laryngology, the annals of all of them from 2018. It's called Oral Sensory Motor Intervention for Children and Adolescents 3 to 18 Years of Age with Dysphagia or Impaired Saliva Control Secondary to Congenital or Early Acquired Disabilities, a review of the literature from 2000 to 2016. And the quote, I won't mince words here. It says, the systematic reviews confirmed the lack of high scientific support for oral sensory motor interventions in children and adolescents with congenital and developmental disabilities. The current research being conducted by Dr. Georgia Malandrecki and her colleagues at the Purdue I Eat Lab, Swallowing and Research Lab, they found in children, pediatric patients with cerebral palsy, that the use of non-speech oral motor exercises for addressing the oral stage of dysphagia is not indicated because it's not a strength issue. Remember, a lot of times when individuals select non-speech oral motor exercises, they go about it and they implement this because they have to increase the strength. The thought process is, is that they're not biting hard enough. They're not chewing hard enough. Their tongue isn't strong enough. But what Dr. Melandraki and colleagues have found is that it's tonal differences and that these children actually just have different tones because of the deficit. So you can't change tone. You can't. It's interplay of upper and lower motor neurons. And we had Dr. Melandraki on episode 127 of First Bite. So it's been a minute. And it's the bridge research to practice for pediatric feeding disorder. Her student, Dr. Rachel Arkenberg, was on talking about motor learning, mm-hmm. and they actually have an invited talk at ASHA specifically talking about the principles of motor learning for mm-hmm. this year. And I would recommend that y'all go and be a sponge and soak it all up because the principles of motor learning boil down to, and this is a very consolidated statement. But with respect to our central pattern generators for mastication, respiration, and deglutition, well, mastication, deglutition, and respiration, it boils down to this. If you learn a skill set in isolation, if I learn to chew in isolation, then that is what I have learned to do. I have not learned how to chew and manage and manipulate a bolus, which actually predisposes us for an increased risk for aspiration because. If we then insert a bolus without any prior experience, that mastication doesn't carry over and increases the likelihood of premature spillage. On the episode that came out yesterday with Dr. Zimmerman, so she used an example with the pacifier of like a kid practicing kicking a ball before soccer practice because he needs that practice before he gets into the game. The difference is in the game, he's still kicking a soccer ball. So it's still the same properties 
that, that they're, he's experiencing. Food does not have the same properties as a chewy tube. Unfortunately, what may, not unfortunately, but what makes food food is that you're able to manipulate it eventually into a pureed consistency. So mm-hmm. if we're not going to have them do that with the point of a chewy tube is that they can't manipulate it into a pureed consistency or they would choke and it would be very, very, very not good. But like, that's the point is like, they're not practicing with an, something that has the same affordance of food as well to be able to manipulate it because they can't do it unless that's food. And like you said, now you're just teaching them to chew that thing, which is in isolation. Great. If they were in a chewy tube chewing contest, that would be really great. They'd do a great job. But those not you hear us when we're on our walks and runs and like really getting into it. Okay. We have a few. It's good. Minutes. We talk to each other in the morning on the way to work. And Michelle says to me, when I get really mad, we say things to each other like, murder is bad or <laughs> be nice today. Bad. I can borrow that quote. Murder is bad. My favorite is when I'm typing on the computers and the boys walk in and they're like, oh, dad, mom's murder mad again. And then they just like beep up on out. And I'm like, yes, yes. Okay. But why do we, this is clinically relevant because if you have patients that are still struggling to advance in the viscosities, if they're struggling to move up within the ITSI framework, the first starting point is, have we ruled out other contributing factors for why they're having difficulty consuming the advanced viscosity and contributing factors being posturing like with the whole body? How, how is their core? How is their head neck strength? Have we ruled out obligatory mouth breathing? Have we ruled out the possibility esophageal. of esophageal? Yep, esophageal, whether it be esophageal dysphagia from, excuse me, structural or motorical or from allergens, or that's the piece that's but being asked. But posture is, it's, and I think that's important to think about because I think what also happens is we know, I hope, all of us here know that positioning and seating is really, really important. And we get kids that can't sit up very well at all. And we get them in a good chair and you see kids that you wouldn't have thought could eat certain consistencies, uh, have the ability to chew and manipulate a bolus because of that, that support and that chair that they're in and that control. But what about our kids who can sit up, but like they're kind of moving around a lot and maybe they have their positioning is a little off or they have such a high arousal state too, that they like are constantly moving and they're like sitting on their feet all the time. And then like, they just overstuff because they just, and they can't breathe because our core and our ability and our diaphragm, like those are all connected. And so how are they doing this? But I think we forget about some of those kids that it's not as obvious about their postural difficulties. And so you're wondering why they're having these difficulties, but if you did get them in a chair with better support, or you worked on that postural control with OT and PT, that you might see significant advances in those areas. But to Michelle's point, if they're not able to advance food in a way that's using food and in that natural way, there's probably something else going on that we need to assess as a team. And this is not your cross to carry. This is not your burden to resolve. It is a team approach. So it takes a lot of understanding to be able to explain that to a parent, 
Because I think sometimes what happens is, okay, well, why do I have you if you can't fix this? Or you, I yes. want you to be doing something, or I've heard about this and I need you to I've try seen it. it on I, have social media. I have parents that come in and say, well, he needs strengthening and he needs to work on the exercises. Are you doing the exercises? And you're like, oh goodness. Yes. No. But the more you inform yourself, the more you can have those conversations with parents to be able to explain why you have these concerns or why you're doing what you're doing. I think I get it when younger clinicians go in and their supervisor is doing this and they don't know what else to do. This is is an easier thing to do. I don't mean that in a bad way. It just is. And when a parent wants you to be doing something, you at least feel like that. Yeah. And I am a reformed all things plastic vibrating on the face and mouth to wake it up clinician. We're not saying we didn't do this. Trust me. No, I did this. And then a mom said, I only didn't do it because Michelle was my supervisor. So she was my first supervisor for feeding. So that's why I didn't do it. But, but if she wasn't, I would have, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh We have just a minute or two. Are there any questions? We didn't come up for air, Aaron. But this all ties back into what we see on the world of social media and what our caregivers see on the world of social media makes. Well, yeah, because a lot of these, we didn't even talk about like the tools that are advertised and how like, and, and with non-seasual motor exercise, I would say just like become informed about the, if there is research out there and the people doing the research are the people that make the product. There are red I'm a little concerned. I'm a little concerned. Yeah. Implicit biases. Sometimes it starts there, but you know, if it hasn't gone past there, then that's just something. And then a lot of parents feel that they have to buy certain things because it's advertised and there's a lot of like fear. That's how we got the bumbo seat. Ask any OT about the quality of a bumbo seat and they'll tell you, chuck it. But you know what? They pay money to put their product on the baby registry so when you go to the target and they give you the zapper you feel empowered wait do you like my tape dispenser it's a hedgehog (laughs) but like you want to zap it and buy it okay but thank y'all for joining us tonight and as always we do have um, some exciting things coming up in the next month this month, uh, let's see by time this gets edited and out I will have finished speaking at Ospeak but I will be helping to assist on Thursday, October 13th. Somebody did put a question. Do you recommend any oral motor goals targeting chewing for NPO kids? Nope. Nope. No, no oral motor goals whatsoever. If I want a child to learn to chew, I I build up slowly. I will pull in modified SOS approach. And I say modified because one, I never took the official class, but we've had her on the podcast a couple of times, but two, I make sure that it's child led in that perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. And I pull in food chaining and I slowly take whatever viscosity that they're accepting and move it up the IDSI scale by allowing them to play with it, them to experience it. I may write a goal, patient will accept three foods at IDC level five if they're accepting them at IDC level four, but that could be a three-month goal. Right. But if they're MPO, if they're MPO, what I would say is, why are they MPO? And don't worry about the fact that they're not, they're still going to have to develop that 
acquisition of feeding skill in the same order as any other child. So I think I get parents that fear like, okay, well, is he ever going to chew? Like, what if we wait too long? Like what's going to happen? It's like they, he still, they still need to go through the same process and it's not going to help to then have that tool practicing chewing just to, to kind of, to me, that's like trying to skip steps and we got to go through all the steps to, to get there. Going back to why are they NPO? Like, what are they even? I would encourage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, does a physician have them NPO? Because I've had patients that have been NPO in the past, not because of a aspiration risk factor, but because of like other medical conditions. Like one child had EOE so bad that his esophagus was actually perforated. And they like, they didn't want him taking anything because they were so worried that he was going to like cause additional damage. So we got to figure that. And if they are MPO, making sure to like figure out the why for that reason. But also if they're, if the physician is just nervous or like some, there are some kids that MPO are MPO that don't necessarily need to be MPO and they can start trialing little bits. Like Sherry Fraker talks a lot about pre-chaining. And so Mm -hmm. the kids that I've worked with who were MPO when I started with them, I've had so much more success by like right away starting if they're safe and the physician is comfortable with like a tiny bit amount, even of like sterile water trials or a little bit of formula or like tastes of things for quality of life, pleasure feeds, just to help make that positive. I'm more concerned if a child's MPO that any experience they have with food or around food is positive than working and making sure that they're building specific skills, if that's helpful. Yes. Yes. Okay. So on Thursday, October 13th, I'll be helping to host the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders um, Pediatric Caregiver Support Group. Also, did you know that once a month, typically the second Thursday of every month, the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders has for free for caregivers a caregiver support group. So we do have that on the First Bite social media page, but feel free to, it has the registration link. And again, it's a free service where we just, we're just there to help guide parents and support them. And we have that coming up. And then um, the biggie, the biggie that we're hoping that everybody will sign up for, and I actually have to go and get the correct date. Y'all are all invited to the Feeding Matters 10th annual community event on November 4th, which is a Friday from 12 to 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. There is a Feeding Matters fundraiser and Aaron and I are hosting the table. It's the first bike table and we have the registration link in our link tree. So we are hoping that y'all will register to attend. Even $5 goes a long way. If I mean, look, I know budgets can be tight, but $5 can... Yeah, I still don't have a car, so I get it. <laughs> it's birthday month for us for mm-hmm. like both boys and my husband. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, but the feeding matters, the money that will be raised will help go to scholarships to send caregivers and their patients for second, third opinions, for procedures, for all of the above. So um, please come sit um, virtually with Aaron and I, and we'd be ever so grateful. Yes, Cynthia, there's so many amazing resources out there. Start with feeding matters. I would go check out their resources page. So everybody, thank y'all for joining us. Thank you. Feeding Matters 
guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.